So if you'd open your Bibles now to Revelation chapter 22, our text verses tonight are verses 12 through 17 that I've entitled The Final Invitation. And the invitation is given in verse number 17 where we read, And the Spirit and the Bride... And that's what Janet just sang about. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And I want to talk about that verse uh, more when we get down to it. And there are a few more sermons between the point that we are right now till we finally get to verse number 17. But in that verse, there is a double invitation that's given. The first part of it is an invitation for Christ to come. Both the Holy Spirit and the bride, that is the church, invite Christ to come back. And then there is an invitation also for those who want to be forgiven of their sins to come and to taste of this refreshing water of life that's given freely in Christ. And that's truly, it's just a a wonderful aspect of our compassionate God The Bible teaches that God desires the salvation of sinners. And you might wonder, well, how does that fit into all the different doctrines that we teach? Certain doctrines that we teach may not seem like God is interested in including everybody in his salvation, uh, but God wants to exclude certain people from it. And I understand what God says about choosing his people prior to the creation. And the ultimate purpose of that, of course, is to show us that salvation is all of God, that it's all by the sovereign will of God. But I also understand that there is a will in God that's called his will of desire. And God desires for people to be saved. And that is a a position that would naturally be taken, or one we ought to think would be a natural one for God to take, because God desires... Uh, people to obey him and any other posture towards men if he desired their destruction then that would be an inducement for them to sin and that would be foolish to say that God desires people to sin he desires obedience so he desires that all people would come to him and to obey him and recognize him as the Lord of heaven and earth and then surrender to his absolute authority so throughout the scriptures we find that God issues invitations for people to come to him And Jesus said that all who will come will be received, that there is none who will be cast out. And that same theme carries throughout the Bible till we come down to the last words that are written. And here we have it in the end. These words are some of the last words that echo in the ears of a lost sinner. Come, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And that is a remarkable invitation especially considering what God knows about the heart of man. He knows the depths of our depravity. He knows our helplessness. He knows our natural hatred of him. But still he holds out his hands to lost sinners. And he says, come, come and be washed in my blood and be cleansed from your sins. And that is really a tender invitation. And after we've read all of these things that we've read about the indignation of the Lord against lost sinners and um, his determination to squash rebellion sinners, all of that's so graphically displayed in the earlier chapters that we've studied. And yet here in the end, he tells us it doesn't have to be this way. If you will just listen to the warning, heed the warnings, do them. And come to me. You can come to me for salvation. And it's just truly a remarkable, unexpected invitation in light of everything that we've studied here in Revelation up to this point.
Now, if you look in the scriptures, Revelation 22, beginning of verse 12, and this is the third message on these verses, and there's still some more to go, and so these are becoming familiar words to us. Verse number 12 says, And behold, I come quickly. That's Jesus speaking. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to eat of the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. I don't want to spend a lot of time on what we've covered already in the first two messages, but I do want to make just a a few comments about the outline that we've already given. It's been a couple of weeks since we've talked about this. So let's just take a moment just to touch on the first two points of the outline, the first of which is the reward of his coming. And the reward of Christ's coming is found in verse number 12, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. There is a reward for every faithful servant of the Lord. And those rewards are determined by the works that we do for Christ, uh, works that are done for the purpose of advancing God's kingdom in the world. There is a judgment that's coming for Christians, and it's not a judgment that's going to say whether you get admitted into heaven or not, but it's a, a judgment for advancement in heaven. And the more faithful that we are to Christ in this life, the more that that will increase our capacity to enjoy heaven. Now, it's not that there's only going to be anyone that's, that's disappointed with heaven, that's sad or dissatisfied there, but there are people that go to heaven and they have a greater capacity to enjoy it than others. And how to explain that is beyond me. We're talking about something that is in the eternal realm, the world that's beyond our comprehension. We're discussing eternal life, and that's beyond anything that we know. So I don't know that how I can adequately explain that to you, but I do believe the Scriptures teach us that the more work we do for Christ, the more things that advance Christ's kingdom in the world, the greater will be our capacity to enjoy heaven. So the primary meaning that we would consider in that verse number 12 is to is to think about that reward for serving Christ. But then there's also a secondary meaning to it. And that is, there is a reward also coming for unbelievers. They're going to receive reward, only we might better term it, they're just desserts. It'd be like a gangster who says to the snitch, you're going to get what's coming to you. And, uh, you know, every, every believer ought to really thank God that he's never going to say that to us. He's never going to say to us, you're going to get what's coming to you because we deserve God's justice. God's justice is that every single one of us would would die and go to hell. But God doesn't give us his justice in this case. He gives us his mercy. Uh, we, We deserve punishment, but instead God offers us mercy because of Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, in your outline, we have the uh, reminder of his consuming presence. In verse 13, Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. 
And that is a statement that ought to be very carefully considered by every reader, that we are right now in the presence of the holy, transcendent God. He fills the entire universe with his presence. David said in the Psalms, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uppermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. And so when Christ says these words, I'm the Alpha and Omega, that is an expression of his eternality. It's a statement of his consuming presence. See, God is not as the pantheist uh, believes. The pantheist believes that God is in everything, that the universe is God, but We don't believe that. We believe that God transcends this universe even though he does fill and uphold every part of it. So we're going to continue now then with the next part that we want to talk about. Verse number 14 says, Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to eat of the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. So thirdly, and this is our subject for tonight, the readiness of his people, the readiness of God's people. Now, several times we have discussed the imminent return of Christ and what it means to live in the light of Christ's return. I mean, our readiness is our our desire to serve God and not to be ashamed when Christ comes. Our readiness is not gazing continually at the sky, as we've discussed, but our readiness is to be ready at all times to do the will of our Heavenly Father. It's to be busy about our duty as God's servants. Now, in the end of verse number 6, the angel said that he was sent to show God's servants things which must shortly be done. And so the position of a believer is naturally assumed here that it will be one of a servant. And what is a servant? Well, he's one who serves. He's one who obeys. A servant is one who does the will of his master, and he does it without question. So those duties are, are understood, and, and all of us should, be, should understand that. But do you know this? That probably 75% of our preaching is spent on this subject, and that's trying to get the servants of the master to do what they're supposed to do. And the New Testament repeats this theme over and over again. The Old Testament is replete with warnings about obeying God's commandments, and it gives us consequences of our disobedience. Now, in that sense, our readiness for Christ's coming is this everyday business of doing God's work. But we're going to take some time here to consider this in a little bit different light, and I want to speak of readiness in a different way. And it ultimately results in the same thing. Uh, But since we do continually fall short of this, and it is a repetitious theme that we find in Scripture, we're not going to do ourselves any harm by talking about it again tonight and in another way. And I'll warn you before I start here, I'm, I'm not going to be the most popular person when this sermon is done. And, and a lot of times that happens. I'm not the most popular guy around, and you may not like some of the things I'm going to say. But let me start with this, though. I want to start with the confusion over the text. And I think we do have to get that out of the way first, the confusion over this text. Now, I've noticed that there are some of you that bring other translations to church instead of the King James. And uh, since we don't have body scanners and TSA uh, and security checkpoints at the door, I know that there are other versions that will slip through, and, and you read some of those while I'm reading the King James. But even if you didn't do that, 
I would still want to talk to you some about the variations that we see in other Bible versions. And, and I do maintain this, and, and I, I still maintain this. I want to reiterate this, that I think that the King James Version is the very best translation that we can use. And I think that's true on a variety of levels, not the least of which would be just even the pure beauty of the language. I think it would be a terrible tragedy for us to abandon the King James for a lot of reasons, and this is one of those. That's the literary quality of it. See, the King James is especially suited for for public reading. It has a flowing cadence to it that's not present in the staccato language of modern versions. But as I I pointed out, and those of you that were here for our study in 1 John, we've talked about some variations of translation, and... The King James is a translation, and we do need to understand that. We're not saying that the translation is inspired. Now, the Bible was inspired in the original languages, but no matter how much anyone tries, it is not possible to reproduce exactly word for word the original languages. Now, the King James does an admirable job of it. It translates the scriptures, whereas modern versions often interpret the scriptures. We don't need interpretation, ter- interpretations of God's word as if God couldn't say what he wanted to say. What the Holy Spirit does is to reveal to us what God has to say. See, we don't need translators to, to inject their biased opinions upon the word of God. But that be as it may, this particular verse, verse number 14, is another of the places where there is a difference between the King James and modern translations on the correct rendering of the verse. Now, here's the way our version reads. Most of you have the King James in front of you. Blessed are they that do his commandments. And most of the modern versions, it'll read this way. Blessed are they that wash their robes. W.A. Criswell was, uh, I think, one of the most eloquent preachers that I've ever heard. He's, uh, he was a preacher that preached from the King James. But he preached an entire sermon on this passage of Scripture, on this particular verse. And, and, and it was almost like a diatribe against the King James. And what he maintained was that there was a scribe that took upon himself to change the reading of this verse, and he did this because he believed that being washed in the blood of Christ was not sufficient for salvation, and he believed that you have to earn your way to heaven. And so he changed the words from wash their robes to do his commandments, and that would reflect the Roman Catholic idea of works for salvation. And so this entire sermon of Criswell is devoted to this supposed change, the history of that change, and the discovery of other manuscripts that, that uh, dispute the King James reading. And then he goes on, and, and this part of the message was great, because he goes into a, a great explanation of how that salvation is by the grace of God, that it comes to us by the sacrifice of Christ, not by the works of man. And as much as I respect Criswell, Criswell, I think that what he did with with, uh, his sermon there was to build a straw man and then beat it to pieces and then claim a hollow victory over it. Now, if the reading here should be, blessed are they that do his commandments like we have in the King James, the question is, has there been a great injustice done to the doctrine of justification by faith alone? Well, if there has been then the Apostle John has already done a great hatchet job on that doctrine in 1 John. 
Let me remind you of what John says in 1 John. And uh, those of you that are students of 1 John and were with us, you recognize this. Where John, he's constantly talking about keeping of commandments. And he says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Now, I don't see that verse as a, or those verses as a declaration of work salvation any more than I see Revelation twenty two fourteen as a declaration of work salvation. Those who keep God's commandments are blessed. They have the right to eat of the tree of life because they're the only ones who can. They're the only ones who can keep God's commandments, and they are one and the same with those who have washed their robes in the blood of Christ. Now, you have other writers that see no practical difference between these two statements. Do his commandments, have your robes washed, and so on. So I'm not going to object to the reading of the newer versions on this particular point because the only objection you can have is, is about, the King, about the King James would be a false objection. So the King James is not teaching justification by works, but rather we arrive at the very same destination even if we have the meaning of the newer versions. Now, that might all be too much information for you, I don't know. But for those of you that have smuggled in other versions, uh, just be aware of this, that neither one of us is reading from an inferior version on this particular point. So let's move on then to the next consideration, and here's where I'm really, really wanting to get to, and that is this point, that cleanliness is next to godliness. How many of you have heard that saying? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Now, that's one of those sayings that Mother would always tell you when she wanted you to wash behind your ears that, you know, if you, want to, if you want to be right with God, you better be clean, buddy. Those that are clean are favored by God. Now, actually, th- this saying has a double entendre, and that is that we should be presentable in bodily appearance, and we also should have our sins washed in the blood of Christ to be acceptable with God. I remember about 30 years ago, and my dad and my brother and I were traveling throughout the north, northwest, uh, and we were on those long drives, one of those long drives. You know, if you're traveling around the, the west, it's a long way between tourist destinations. And so to kind of keep ourselves busy and occupied, we, we got into a little game, and this game was we would see who would quote the most scripture. And so my brother would quote one, then I would quote one, then he would quote one, then I would quote one. Then it'd be his turn again, then my turn again. And we went on and on and on until finally we got to the place we were running low on scriptures that we knew. And so he tried to fool me. And he said, cleanliness is next to godliness. And I said, that's not in the Bible. And further than that, it's a shame on you for trying to cheat while we're playing a Bible game. So... But we need to look at that statement because there is actually truth in it, although we don't find it in that exact form in the Bible. So I want to take a look at that and, and look at this. Is this a correct double entendre here, that cleanliness is next to godliness? Well, first of all, I think that we can make this application, that clean clothes define character. seems like an odd subject for me to talk about, but clean clothes define character. And perhaps we could broaden that just a bit to say that clothes cause people to form opinions of you. Now, whether you like it or not, we live in a fashion-conscious world, whether you like it or not. 
What you wear causes people to form opinions of you. And that's why your kids want $200 gym shoes the, and, they, and why they want to wear the designer brands and not the Walmart brand. I mean, that they're trying to fit in. And sometimes they get ostracized if they're not up to date on their fashion. And so we think, well, how foolish that is. I mean, how foolish it is for our young people to give into that kind of peer pressure. And we act as if we're immune to it. But we are exactly the same way. Just because we got older doesn't mean we're not fashion conscious any longer. Now, some of you may be fashion deprived and so forth. I mean, but the reason that I don't wear a leisure suit tonight and I'm not wearing a Nehru jacket is because I want to keep up with the times. I want to keep up with the fashion. Well, that be as it may, there, there are other ways that people can form opinions of you. And, and I think about the, one of the things when I, when, I was, when I was looking at this and thinking about it, came to my mind this story that we have in the Old Testament of uh, Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Now, I'm not going to go into all the story now, but Tamar was upset that Judah had not given her one of his other sons to marry when her husband died. And so she, she pretended that she was a prostitute in order to entrap Judah. Now, at first, Tamar appears in the story wearing the clothes of mourning. Her husband had died, and when a person dressed in a certain way, then you could tell that they were grieving over the loss of a loved one. But she took off those clothes, and she put on another type of clothes. And what she did was to put on the clothes of a harlot. And when Judah saw her, he recognized that type of clothing, and so he was enticed to commit adultery with her. Now, my point here is that what you wear says something about your character. I don't often deal with dress issues, and perhaps I should say more about this because uh, we do have some problems with it. But what is the purpose in what... I'm going to get on men and women both tonight, so we'll get here a little bit. What's the purpose of women wearing low-cut clothing? What's the purpose of wearing jeans that are so tight that you have to have a shoehorn to get into them? What's the purpose of that? Well, it's our culture, isn't it? Our culture says, show it off. If you've got it, then show it. And that's just what the culture says. You got it, and it's done for enticement. It's a sexual statement. And whether it's done consciously or subconsciously, it tells what's on your mind. Now, I know I'm, I'm, this is probably the most, not the most politically correct type of statements that I can make, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that if you're going to advertise something, that you're going to get a response to your ad. That's what advertising is all about. You know this also. I reject the type of thinking that says that what we're going to do is we're going to you know, have a fashion contest for one thing or we're going to judge what everybody's wearing. And so we're going to have the girls come in and we're going to have them kneel down on the floor and we're going to measure the height of their skirt above their knees and all of those kinds of things. I'm not going to do that. But at the same time, I do know that there are Christians who cross the line. I mean, they go too far and some of them do it purposely. And you have things like, like haircuts, for instance. People need to get their haircut. And baggy clothes. Your clothes, some of them need to be baggier. And now you're going to understand why I don't have a rule book because then I'm going to have to define how much is too baggy and how much is not baggy enough because you know there's going to be this little moron that comes along with his pants hanging off of his rear end and the crotch down between his ankles so he's stumbling along. So I'm going to have to have this this rule book that defines all of that for you. Well, I'm not going to do that. But I am 
fashion conscious because I know that there are people that form opinions by what people wear. That's a fact of life. And it's better for a Christian to have a good opinion formed of him than a bad one. No matter where it comes from, it's still better to do that. It's a matter of testimony. Now, some will just say, well, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what anybody thinks about that. I do. And the reason that I do is because when I stop caring, I've lost an opportunity with the gospel. You look at the Apostle Paul, and you see when he cared to regard etiquette, when it was expedient, the Apostle Paul knew when to do that. Now, let me return also to the, to the cleanliness for just a moment. Personal hygiene is also a Christian consideration. I mean, you ought to take a bath. You ought to smell good. Put on clean clothes because personal presentation is important. Whenever you want to talk to somebody about the Lord, your personal presentation is important. You show up at somebody's house and you want to talk to them about the Lord and you smell like you fell into a dumpster and you look like you did too, well, you've lost the audience. You're not going to be able to talk to people about the Lord. Let me give you another thought on this. Some of you, you know, I want to talk about this as well. Some of you may want to know, why, why do you always show up in a suit and tie? Well, why do you always dress that way? Well, I do it because I believe in the dignity of what I do. I dress this way because I think I have the most important position in the world. This is more important than what the president does, more important than what anybody does. And I think there's some dignity that goes along with this. You know, I've told you this story uh, maybe a couple of times before, but about a year or so ago, a couple years, I can't remember how long, um, I went to um, a church and the preacher came into the pulpit, and it looked like he just rolled down the hill behind the church. I mean, he came into the church with a pair of steel-toe boots. He had his shirt unbuttoned. He had his shirt tail hanging out. He had on a pair of black jeans that had holes in them. And when he got up to preach his sermon, it was pretty much like he looked. He wasn't much to look like, and his sermon wasn't much to hear. Before you come to church, look at yourself in the mirror. Be clean, be presentable. Because cleanliness is next to godliness. Let me quote to you something that J.A. Seiss wrote, and this is way back in the 19th century. He said, If anyone is habitually filthy, slovenly unclean, and untidy in his garments, it's a blur upon him, a repugnance, a thing to make his presence unwelcome and undesirable in respectable company. When it comes to agreeable social recognition and intercourse, clean clothes are associated with a right heart, a right mind, and right feeling. Now, you'll notice, and and I want to make it clear to you, what what Sai says here, he's not talking about a particular fashion that you wear. And maybe you don't have the same clothes that somebody else has. Maybe you can't afford the same clothes that somebody else has. What he's talking about here is the presentation, not the fashion. Let's be clean. Let's be presentable. Let's look like we belong to God. I mean, that's, I think that's clear from the Scripture. Well, Seitz uh, then shifts the thought, and, and I want to as well, for us to look at secondly here, that clean clothes, or clean robes, I should say, are a requirement. Clean robes are a requirement. Now we're going to get into the more spiritual side of this. It's a requirement for entrance into heaven that you have on the right garments. Now we're not talking about your physical clothes. Now we're talking that you need to be washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what we find in Scripture. Washing is often a metaphor in the Scriptures for being right and acceptable with God. Let me give you some examples of that. Ephesians chapter 5, 
starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 6.11, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And then Revelation 1.5, And from Jesus, who is the faithful witness and first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So robes that are washed, that is always emblematic in Scripture of being clean before God, clean from the defilement of sin. And then and only then is a person fit to come into the presence of God. Now, on the other side of that, unwashed robes are symbolic of sin. They speak of defilement and not being acceptable with God. Now, all of that, of course, that's all well and good. And I think that it's not hard to understand this type of symbolism. But are we to think, and, and this kind of fits in with a question that we had in a Sunday's, a Sunday morning forum today uh, about the literalness of Scripture. And uh, are, we, are we to think then by reading this that there is a literal clean robe that's been washed in the blood of Christ. Is that, is that the thought Scripture is trying to convey? Well, I'll tell you this, that I think that there is some literalism here. And, and I can see this. I mean, I could see clean, clean white robes that are worn by people in heaven. I mean, it, to me, it's just spoken of too often in Scripture not to have some form of literalness to it. But we have to dig a little bit deeper here and understand that what these writers are trying to get at when they talk about washing our robes and being washed by regeneration and being uh, just washed all of these different times, that the primary meaning of those Scriptures has an application to the way that Christians live. And this is what the scripture says. We've just read it in our text. Blessed are they that do his commandments. It has to do with the way that you live. And that's why I say when you, when you put this other phrase in here that the modern versions have, blessed are they that wash their robes, there's no practical difference in that. Because what it means is a person who fights the sins of the flesh in order that they stand rightly before Christ, that when he comes, they're not ashamed. Titus chapter 2 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And listen, the word purify and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. There's just too many scriptures on this. They, they, they show us that washing our garments has an application to daily cleansing from the defilement of sin. And so that when Christ comes, if we're looking for that imminent return of Christ, we expect him to come back, that when he does come back, we can look up. We can look to him instead of having our eyes downcast because we're still in the defilement of sin. 
So dirty robes, that is a symbol of sinfulness. And it talks about the way that you live your life. Now, we're going to see something very distasteful in the next scripture that I'm going to read in one sense of the word. Zechariah 3, verse number 3 is a vivid demonstration of this. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. Now, keep that Keep that phrase there, filthy garments in your mind. Now, the Joshua here is not Joshua that you read about in the book of Joshua. This is Joshua the high priest who lives at a much, much later time. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Now, that word filthy, the Hebrew word there is a very graphic word. It's not a pleasant word. And what the word actually means is excrement. It's the way that God views the pollution of sin. Now, if you keep this thought in your mind every time that you decide that you're going to sin against God, you have soiled your garments with excrement. That's not a very pretty thought. And you don't want Christ to return and find you in that condition. Watch the way that you live. That's what this is all about. Now, let's finish up then with this last thought on this verse. The C on your listening sheet is the final beatitude. Blessed are they that do his commandments. This is the seventh and the final beatitude that we find in Revelation. If our robes have been washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ, then we are promised entrance into the gates of the heavenly city. That's what you might call the key card. That's the key card that you swipe to get in. And if you want to put it another way, there's an angel standing at every gate of the New Jerusalem, and you have to have the proper credentials. You've got to show the proper ones. And and this is much, much better than flashing your card at Costco because there's a lot better stuff inside of heaven than there is in Costco. You know what? When I I go to San Diego, my son-in-law doesn't have a Costco card. I have a Costco card. And he says, let's go to Costco. And you know why he wants to go to Costco? Because he makes the rounds up and down the aisles of all those ladies there giving away free food. And he goes by 15 times, all these people, and just fills himself up with all that stuff they're offering at Costco. (laughs) There you go. Well, this is much, much better. Because when you get into heaven, you have the right to eat of the tree of life. And only those that have the credentials can get in. These are people that have been forgiven of their sins. They have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's no entrance into heaven without this. So you see, the Bible does have something to say about clothes, whether you're talking about literally or or spiritually. Proper clothing determines your character. So you must be dressed for this event. In Matthew 22, you're probably familiar with this parable that Jesus gave about a king who had prepared a wedding feast, and this was for his son. And uh, I'm I'm not going to get into all the applications of it, but there were many people that were invited to come to this wedding feast, and they wouldn't come. And so the king told his servants, you go out and you find a, a whole different group of guests, and you bring them into the wedding feast. And the servants did that, and they brought all the people in, 
but there was one person there that didn't have on the right kind of garment. And so the king said, throw him out of here. And that's what they did. As I said, I'm not going to go into the explanation of that tonight. I just want you to understand this. You must have the proper clothes on to be pleasing to the king. Your clothes have to be clothes of righteousness. Your robes must be washed in the blood of Christ. And so if you want to serve him, you know, people say, well, yeah, I love Christ and I want to serve him. I do want to serve him. I want to be admitted to his banquet. Well, if you're going to, you have to meet all the requirements. You have to meet the requirements that he sets. You don't set them, he sets them. So God says you have to be clean and presentable. And the only way to be clean and presentable is faith in Jesus Christ. And what he does is he cleans you up. He puts on the fresh garments of salvation. And then he says, you can come in and you can eat of the tree of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Your word, we thank you for what we learn here. And Lord, I I just pray that every Christian in here tonight would take this to heart and would very clearly understand understand the message that's been given. We we have, uh, there is, so to speak, a reputation for Christians who uphold. We are servants of the king. We want to look like servants of king. We want to act like them. And we do that for two things, for the testimony that we have before the world that we want to win to Christ and so that we are personally acceptable before Christ. So, Lord, I just pray that you would bless our people, help us to take your word to heart and live lives that are clean and holy and righteous and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.